So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch to take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. Also, the content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes, including sex and related topics. Thanks so much for joining us today. So this week, we're switching it up and we're covering a new movie. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? This is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. I gotta take Fight Club up a notch. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. you fight anyone, who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. That's right. We are very excited to cover Fight Club today. We're breaking the cardinal rule, and we are going to talk about Fight Club in today's session, <laughs> um, which is one of my favorite movies. And then Dr. Sam is also a very big fan of Chuck Palahniuk. Yes, yeah, so I'm excited to talk about this movie as well. As Dr. Fran mentioned, Fight Club is based on the 1996 novel by Chuck Palahniuk, and I actually believe that it was his debut novel, which is just amazing. Yeah, it's really impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> Talented writer. Um, and so Fight Club follows a narrator with insomnia who is really unhappy with his career as an automobile recall specialist and is just overall pretty unhappy with his life. While traveling for work, he meets Tyler Durden, who is a soap salesman. After a tragedy befalls the narrator's condo and possessions, he moves in with Tyler, and the two start an underground fight club. Yeah, and so for today's session, we're really excited to cover some new diagnoses and themes. Um, we're really looking forward to getting into that with you guys today, uh, and we want to do that through a few of the different characters in Fight Club. So we want to start off with the narrator, like Dr. Sam was referring to, who actually doesn't have a name that's referenced um, throughout most of the movie. Sometimes people refer to him as the narrator when they talk about the films or the movie, sometimes as Jack, because he frequently discusses Jack in his inner monologue based on what he's read in a reader digest. Magazine. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. Yes, there's actually a lot of interesting kind of just like debate and analyses over the narrator and the various names and um, times that he's been called different names, but we're going to call him Jack. And so Jack is played by the very talented Edward Norton. Um, biased because not only do I love the work of Chuck Palahniuk, but I'm a big Edward Norton fan. I think he's a fantastic actor. <laughs> very talented. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the movies he's in are some of the like classic like blockbuster, but also very like thought-provoking and insightful films. 
Yes, he's just very talented. Makes for enjoyable films for sure. And in this movie, Jack, he's really kind of sort of an everyman. Uh, An ordinary type of guy just kind of going through the motions, appears to be bored with his life and work, um, and really seemingly just spends a large amount of time either at work or alone in his condo, uh, thinking about what furniture best suits his personality to buy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like you said, just this uh, characteristic or caricature of like what a typical life is like. I think the only thing you're missing, but he, depending on the age range or developmental period he's in, is kind of like the wife and kids, right? But otherwise he's got like the job, he's got the house, like he's on that trajectory, but seems to be like very unhappy with where he's at in his life. Definitely. And I think another defining characteristic, kind of like you mentioned with the unhappiness, which we'll definitely discuss, um, we also learned that Jack has insomnia. Um, And I think it's kind of interesting to actually listen to the way Jack describes what having insomnia feels like. With insomnia, nothing's real. Everything's far away. Everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. When you have insomnia, you're never really asleep. And you're never really awake. So I just think that's like a really interesting way to think about it because, you know, you're having difficulty sleeping. So he's saying he's never asleep. But then this also leads to difficulty functioning in his everyday life, you know, being alert, being able to focus and concentrate. So also not feeling like he's ever awake, um, which just sounds Mm -hmm. miserable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because insomnia is a word that we hear a lot, like in the general public and people say like, oh, I have insomnia. Um, And this is actually a big area of Dr. Sam's research. So Dr. Sam, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what insomnia actually is? Oh, I would love to. And I think as our <laughs> as our listeners now know, you know, following Step Brothers, sleep is a big area of interest in mine. So um, insomnia is another one of those sleep-wake disorders, uh, similar to how we had discussed before with the sleepwalking. Um, but with insomnia, what we see is people struggling to fall asleep, stay asleep, or feel, you know, refreshed and rested after sleeping. Um, and like we see with Jack, this does lead to daytime difficulty, so feeling fatigued or foggy, having trouble focusing, thinking, and also experiencing anxiety and pain along with a, a myriad of symptoms. Um, and, you know, interestingly, at some parts, I think we see this in Jack too. He kind of expresses that he's in pain or he kind of talks about not being able to pay attention or focus and having difficulty related to his lack of sleep. I think it's also important to note, like, this is an actual diagnosis that a psychologist yes. um, or, you know, a medical provider or things like that. It's not just a term we use to describe this phenomenon, but it is actually a diagnosis that is in our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Conditions. I think that's a great point because I think we will hear people colloquially, like, if you have trouble sleeping, like, one night or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. every now and then, a lot of people will say, like, oh, I have insomnia or I'm an insomniac. <laughs> but there actually is a clinical threshold to being considered, you know, or being diagnosed with insomnia. And another Mm -hmm. important piece of it, uh, sometimes people might get it confused with being like sleep deprived. But the difference there is that with sleep deprivation, there's actually something in the environment or other factors that are leading to the inability to sleep. Whereas with insomnia, Mm -hmm. the individual has adequate opportunity to sleep, but they still have difficulty sleeping well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah. And As you mentioned with those criteria to actually be diagnosed with insomnia, we do see with Jack some of the the major criteria that we would be looking for to diagnose someone with insomnia is difficulty initiating sleep, um, difficulty maintaining sleep, and it's really this overall dissatisfaction with either the quantity or quality or both associated with sleep. 
in order to make the diagnosis, we'd want to see that it is causing some significant distress and functioning. And we would want to see it occurring at least three nights per week and present for at least three months. And Jack, he does mention that he's been having significant sleep trouble for the past six months. So taking that all into account, it does sound like he likely would, if he came into a psychologist's yeah. <laughs> office, meet criteria for insomnia disorder. Yes. And, you know, of course, it's a movie, so I do think it is exaggerated. But um, I think seeing someone like Jack and just his overall sleep dysfunction is pretty alarming. Um, You know, he goes in to see that doctor. And let's actually kind of let's listen to Jack asking for help from the doctor. I think it's interesting. No, you can't die from insomnia. What about narcolepsy? I nod off. I wake up in strange places. I have no idea how I got there. You need to lighten up. Can you... Please just give me something. Red and blue, two and alls, lipstick, red, second alls. No. You need healthy, natural sleep. Choose some valerian root and get more exercise. I think the thing that strikes me in this clip is just how dismissive this doctor is. Um, also, I know you and I, when we watched this clip together, were thinking about, like, where are they even? Yeah. Like, why are they not in a f- doctor's office? They're just, like, sitting in a hallway. Like, is this his friend? Like, I don't know. It's just a bizarre interaction. And then instead of actually trying to help him and figure out, he's, again, very dismissive of what's going on with Jack and says, you know, take valerian root and get some exercise. Like, you'll be fine kind of situation. When clearly Jack is really struggling. He is really struggling. I was also, you know, taken aback by just how kind of apathetic or dismissive the clinician was. I do get the sense, you know, uh, Jack does identify himself as having insomnia. He is kind of listing off medications to the doctor. So he has probably received treatment in the past medication. And mm-hmm. what we know about people that suffer from insomnia is that sometimes when you take medications, your body can get used to them and they become less effective over time. Um, and so I think the doctor kind of saw that he was like asking for medication. He was kind of shaking. And the doctor just like, you know, wasn't going to go down that route with prescribing, which, you know, mm-hmm. there are other effective treatments that we know help people with insomnia. So I think kind of just sending him off to have the valerian route, which I... I will admit, I'm not sure what that would do or what that is, um, and exercise. Which exercise can be a helpful recommendation, but I think if kind of fleshed out and discussed more. But probably what should have happened is Jack could have been recommended to see a therapy for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is an effective treatment and really is kind of a brief targeted treatment. So it's not like he'd have to be in therapy forever or, you know, we'll get into some of the other reasons why someone like Jack might need therapy, but related to the sleep piece, I think it would have benefited him. (laughs) And maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit, because I think we don't often think about how therapy can be helpful for like something we think of as being more like a health related thing, like sleep. We oftentimes think of therapy as helpful for like mood or emotions, but maybe you can talk about what that would look like for something like sleep. That's a great point. And so we always just have to remember that our mind and body are connected. So a lot of times with things that are related to our health or the way we're feeling physically, there are different behavioral interventions that can help with that. And so for sleep specifically, there are a couple recommendations and what the treatment would look like um, that involve kind of just changing the way people go about their sleep routine and attempting to get sleep, as well as the way that they think about sleep. So like cognitive behavioral kind of hints at one of the pieces the cognitive part really just is like a fancy word for thoughts we would work with the individual to challenge and alter their thoughts that they're having that are about sleep problems um, or kind of worrying about sleep and then for the behavioral piece there are a lot of things that we would work on such as you know trying to shift negative associations um, related to the bed and bedroom by 
only using the bed for sleep and sex. So, you know, not being in the bed on your phone or on your TV or anything else that might distract you from sleep. Um, doing some other behavioral things like, again, limiting electronics, not having caffeine, some other things that we call sleep hygiene learning some relaxation skills to use before bed. Um, and then actually there's this method called paradoxical intention, which kind of would ask individuals to try like intentionally not to fall asleep, <laughs> which sounds kind of like, why would you tell someone who can't fall asleep to not fall asleep? Um, but we I don't think Jack would like that idea. <laughs> he probably wouldn't. But you know what that what the kind of thought behind that is that it actually reduces kind of the stress and pressure and the focus on trying to force sleep and allowing the body to kind of become tired before you're, you know, trying to fall asleep again. And then only spending time in the bed that would be productive time. So restricting the amount of time in bed, as opposed to just staying in bed for like eight hours, tossing and turning and it being ineffective. So, you know, there are a lot of great strategies. And I think that Jack would benefit from strategies like that, as opposed to, doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, just take take some valerian root and exercise a little bit. Usually not going to be a cure-all. Well, I appreciate you sharing all those tips, and we'll definitely link some of these in our um, on our resource page on our website. Um, we could talk about sleep and different strategies for helping sleep for the entire episode, but we won't. Yeah, we um, could. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of Jack's cures for his sleep problem is actually to start going to these support groups. So while he's at this doctor's office, he kind of learns about um, these support groups for men with testicular cancer, mm-hmm. and then he really finds that while he starts to go into these groups, that it helps him um, have a release of emotions. He's finally ever able to cry and kind of break down and something about this release of emotion during these groups, even though he doesn't have testicular cancer or any other cancer that he's aware of, but he goes to these groups anyway, something about this is an emotional release for him. Yes, and I think Jack says, you know, he's able to get that release and finally cry and that that release and that crying allows him to sleep. And I think he even says, like, I slept like a baby after that. Um, I think it's interesting because with Jack, we could hypothesize or we get the sense that there are other things going on, kind of like, you know, in his past or deeper kind of things that we don't really get to hear about so much in the movie. And I think some Mm -hmm. of that could be related, you know, to his sleep difficulties, like for example, like mood or um, having co-occurring other psychological disorders can impact your sleep. And one of those is actually depression or low mood. So kind of uh, Dr. Fran, like what would you say like regarding Jack's maybe kind of overall mood or emotional state throughout the movie? Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely comes off as very depressed, just very down, somber. Um, We also see that he seems very lonely and isolated. He doesn't seem to seek out or connect with others, really, even though he goes to these support groups and on the exterior is bonding with, you know, Bob or some of the other people that he meets. It's really the surface level connection and he's not really feeling interpersonally connected with them. Um, So I, yeah, I would definitely describe him as coming off as seemingly pretty depressed. I agree. You know, we also hear him making comments about wanting to die. So having at least Mm -hmm. like what might seem to be passive suicidal ideation. Every time the plane banked too sharply on takeoff for landing, I prayed for a crash or a midair collision. Anything. Uh, I agree that he seems very lonely and isolated. So throughout the movie, we only really see him have two potentially more significant relationships with Marla and Tyler. So Tyler, we will definitely get to and talk more about him. Um, I think his relationship with Marla is also interesting because she similarly presents um, with low mood and also has a suicide Mm -hmm. attempt in the movie. 
Yeah, and there are some comments even Jack makes when he describes Marla about how, you know, this isn't an isolated incident, that she kind of goes about her life wishing she would die. Marla's philosophy of life was that she might die at any moment. The tragedy, she said, was that she didn't. And she attends the focus groups as well. And I think she makes a comment about like the reason why she does it is to combat loneliness. So she's also kind of struggling with that isolation and feeling like she doesn't have a lot of um, social support, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she's a really interesting character. Um, I really like that actress, Helena Bonham Carter. She's really good in this movie and in a lot of other movies that she's in. Harry Potter, shout out there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think she's a really interesting character and they have such an interesting dynamic, which we'll talk a little bit more about their relationship as we talk through the rest of the session. Um, But I think kind of this interesting how two people that are really struggling kind of like are finding similarities or kind of like shared... um, situations that they're in but then there also becomes like conflict and tension because they're like no you're taking my space i can't cry with another (laughs) uh whatever liar around or forget how exactly he says it but imposter i think is that what he calls it? yeah something like that marla the big tourist something like that and that part is interesting because jack might have been able to take that opportunity like oh you're coming to these groups also seeking something. Maybe we could provide Mm -hmm. each other with like an interpersonal friendship, relationship, social support, but instead he kind of tries to block her out. (laughs) Right. The movie might have turned out very differently if that had happened. That's true. I think there are a lot of, actually, now that you make that comment, I think that there are a lot of instances that if Jack had chosen Marla, um, the movie would have been very different. Yeah, definitely. And going back to the sleep thing, um, I was just thinking also that, you know, Difficulty sleeping is another symptom of depression. Yes. Um, And so that is definitely consistent with what we see with Jack, but also I think it's important to note you can have both a disorder like depression and insomnia disorder. So even though it's a symptom, sometimes you're having to tease out, you know, what is enough to make it its own disorder versus what is just one symptom of depression or some other kind of mental health condition. I think that's a great point. And in this case, I would say that Jack's sleep difficulties do go above and beyond what we might expect Mm -hmm. with someone with um, major depression or a major depressive episode so that he would still warrant the insomnia diagnosis. I would think that treating his insomnia would be a priority because that would potentially have a positive impact on his mood, you know, and just his ability Mm -hmm. to cope with his emotions if he is more rested. Right. And he might be able to engage more in therapy about his mood if he's not so... Um, you know, tired and, you know, if he's able to actually get help, helpful sleep. Agreed. Jack's sleep is very impairing. He'll make comments about like, you know, different time zones and waking up and not remembering like what airport he was in or where he's going and just kind of like feeling confused at work. So it's having a great impact on him overall, I think his well-being. Something else you alluded to before thinking about potential diagnoses or things that might be going on with Jack is also any kind of history that, and we don't really get a lot of his background or his history or things that have happened. Um, he does make comments about how his father left when he was young and kind of kept starting new families. Um, he also mentions at one point that he was kind of a go-between when his parents fought. He would pass messages between them. So we kind of get hints that there were some things about his childhood that may have been stressful or difficult or even traumatic for him, but we just don't really get a ton more information than that. That's true. And one of the negative things that occurs to Jack in the movie is that his condo actually explodes, right? So there's a fire. He loses all Mm. of his possessions. And when this happens, we find that he has no one to turn to. He considers Mm -hmm. calling Marla, who he had just met, um, you know, at the support groups and gotten her phone number 
basically just to tell her which which groups to avoid. And then Tyler right. Durden's phone number, who he had just gotten on the airplane. And those are his two options. So that kind of shows that, like, you know, maybe whatever happened in his past and also in his current, he doesn't have family or friends that at least he feels like at that time he could reach out to for support or help when something like that happens. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a big clue into the relationships that he does not seem to have. Yeah, and speaking of Tyler, so Jack's life actually really takes a turn and changes when he meets Tyler. Like I mentioned, when his condo blows up, he does call Tyler looking for help. He ends up going to live with him, and they form the Fight Club. So why don't we talk about Tyler for a second? So Tyler Durden is played by the infamous Brad Pitt, another... Very famous and very talented actor. Been in a lot of really great movies. Mm -hmm. And Tyler really seems to represent a lot of the things that Jack isn't. So he's really charismatic and charming. He seems to really have like a sense of purpose um, about what he's doing with his life and very confident. Um, He also seems to be living this very like carefree um, lifestyle um, and really doesn't seem to be constricted by like these typical societal roles and expectations that Jack seems to be really like fighting against. Tyler's a very interesting character, as you mentioned, and definitely seems different from Jack in a lot of ways. I think that there are also some notable personality traits and patterns that we pick up on throughout the film that indicate that there might also be some things going on with Tyler psychologically. Yeah, so the main thing that comes to mind for me when I think about Tyler and some of his characteristics is um, a diagnosis or some terms that we've talked about in um, actually our episode with you is antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. And Dr. Fran does mean the Netflix hit you. She wasn't just referring to me when she was saying antisocial personality disorder, for the record. Good clarification. Yes, the episode that we did on the TV show, not the episode we did on Dr. Sam. Um, But yeah, so we are not going to get super into ASPD and psychopathy today because, again, we've already done that. If you're interested in learning more about it, check out that episode if you haven't already. But there are some characteristics we wanted to go through and kind of how they relate to Tyler. Um, So one thing that kind of jumps out for me, um, and this isn't necessarily a... uh, a um, like a symptom of psychopathy or ASPD, but it is oftentimes uh, associated with it, is this idea of kind of like sensation seeking or low arousal. So the idea being that individuals um, with these types of characteristics are kind of constantly seeking, thrill seeking, or trying to find some way of feeling something more. So we see that with Fight Club, which we'll get into, but then it kind of escalates and he's having to do more and more to kind of feel something and to like really uh, get that sensation seeking met. Yeah, kind of like engaging in some risky behaviors, like when he goes and steals the fat to make his soap, his soap even. There's one scene uh, related to the Fight Club where he is being confronted by like mm-hmm. the owner of the bar that they're fighting in the basement of and kind of standing up to him in a really mm-hmm. dangerous situation because the guy has a gun. Uh, so we do see this come up, I think, several times with Tyler for sure. Another thing really is just kind of, uh, I think, along those lines is a disregard or like a violation of certain like rules and just like safety of others yeah it seems to be something i mean i mean that's part of his like tenants of fight club and what turns out to be project mayhem is kind of like a disregard for societal rules and expectations and even laws right Definitely. And I think it's kind of interesting because with Tyler, again, it is a movie. So there is this dichotomy that we see sometimes in him because he does show a general kind of like, 
like lack of interest in others or kind of how he treats them. Like we see Mm -hmm. that with his relationship with Marla. So he actually does have a sexual relationship with her, but doesn't really seem to care for her beyond that. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, he meets her because after her suicide attempt, he actually hears her on the phone and then goes to help her. So kind of like he is, he does have empathy in that way where he's wanting to save her or help her. But then once they engage in a relationship, doesn't really care about her. Mm -hmm. He then also holds, um, a guy at gunpoint and kind of threatens him like I'm going to be checking up on you and if you don't become a veterinarian I'm going to kill you so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like his in his weird way he's like helping them progress and meet their goals but obviously in a very violent and inappropriate way yeah and I think that's actually an important distinction because in the diagnostic criteria it's either a lack of empathy or um, rationalizing the hurt caused by others so even though like he might you know he's trying to like rationalize like oh well i did this because like i'm actually helping him right so it's kind of this distorted view of um taking something violent or dangerous or hurtful but saying like oh no it was for for them or it was like rationalized for some reason i think that's the perfect word to use when we're talking about tyler because we will see that throughout the film and sometimes people might think when we say like rationalize that that means like you're trying to think in a very rational way (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and actually what we mean in in this regard is someone's just kind of rationalizing or like justifying or explaining Mm -hmm. their own behaviors to themselves and I think we see that a lot with Tyler exactly like what you're mentioning like he kind of does these inappropriate actions or risky actions but then in his mind has a reason and justification for doing them uh, and kind of makes them like quote unquote right in his mind and I think a good example of that actually is the fight club so it starts off as this um, you know, kind of seem seemingly impromptu situation between Jack and Tyler, where Tyler just says, hit me. And then it kind of devolves into something much bigger than that. Let's actually listen. You know, it's the first night Jack goes out for drinks with Tyler after his condo has exploded. He's kind of seeking help. Um, and let's kind of listen to how the fights begin. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on. Give me this one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God. This is crazy. You I should go crazy. Let her rip. Hey, I don't know about this. I don't either, but who gives a shit? No one's watching. What do you care? Wait, what? This is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What? Like in the <laughs> face? <laughs> Surprise me. Motherfucker! You hit me in the ear! Well, Jesus, I'm sorry. Ow! Christ! Why the ear, man? I fucked it up. No, that was perfect. That really hurts. Right? Hit me again. (laughs) No, you hit me. Come on! We should do this again sometime. I think, again, we're kind of hearing Tyler rationalize, right? He kind of says, we don't know who we really are. You don't know yourself um, or you can't really understand certain things about yourself until you've been in a fight. And so mm-hmm. as we heard, he really provokes Jack into getting into this fight with him. Uh, and how does Jack respond to the fight? You know, his first reaction is surprise and kind of like, <laughs> why would I hit you? This is odd. I'm not going to do that. But then once they start engaging in this little brawl outside of the bar, um, he starts to like 
feel something. And again, this is kind of going back to that sensation seeking and maybe for different reasons. Um, Jack is expressed that he feels like this very numb. He doesn't really feel anything. He can't cry. The only way he can get an emotional release is through the support groups. And now all of a sudden he has this alternative to the support groups where he kind of describes that like, you know, after a fight, everything else is turned down. So it's some other way of kind of having this emotional release or outlet or something for him. It's interesting when we think back to when we first meet Jack and his main kind of like outlets or the way that he copes is, you know, cleaning his apartment, buying all of that weird furniture from Ikea that he like just can't get enough of because he kind of think that that defines him in some way. And then we see him really shift uh, to the focus groups as a coping, kind of helping him to get that release and sleep. And now here we are with the fighting. That's the thing that kind of helps get him through now. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, going back to that quote that he says that after the fight, everything, all the volume turns down, we see as the fight club gets bigger and bigger, the fights also seem to get more violent um, people are willing and yes. kind of like more um, aggressive with the fights and are willing to take more hits and all these different things. And then, you know, he's showing up to work with black eyes and he kind of talking about how like his whole view on things is kind of changing because fight his whole life becomes this fight club. Definitely. And we see his behavior change too, you know, where he used to be a little bit more docile. He actually goes in and threatens his boss mm-hmm. at work to basically continue to pay him so that he could fund the fight club without doing any work and then when the boss kind of says like this is a incredulous like request he's not going to play along with it jack ends up beating himself up um Mm -hmm. and creating a scene and blackmailing the boss so that he has to do this um so we definitely also see that jack's behaviors are escalating as well kind of you know maybe in a different for a different purpose but that same kind of engaging in more risky um and more risky behaviors and definitely very different from what we were seeing from Jack in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And just kind of similarly, so we see Tyler and Jack's behavior start to escalate and that kind of parallels the fight club getting bigger and turning into a much bigger, you know, system than just these fights that are happening in basements. So they eventually develop into what Tyler calls Project Mayhem. So explodes indeed, Dr. Fran. <laughs> um, I guess that's like a little like, a, is that a pun? No, it's just a very literal <laughs> uh, explanation about what's about to happen, I guess. Um, so the Fight Club does shift as we see this development of Project Mayhem. What we start to see is that, you know, Jack kind of appears unaware of what's happening and men that were a part of the fight club start showing up and standing on their porch to be let in Mm -hmm. to join some kind of training. So they refer to these people as applicants and they say that they have to kind of go through this hazing process to then join the training phase. Right. If the applicant is young, tell me he's too young. Old, too old, fat, too fat. Applicant? If the applicant then waits for three days without food, shelter, or encouragement, he may then enter and begin his training. Training for what? So as we hear in that clip, they're really hazing the members, right? They're yelling at them, they're berating them, telling them to quit, that they're not good of, good enough, saying really negative things. You're too young to train here. End the story. Now quit wasting our time. Get the fuck out of here. Basically, they have to wait on this porch for three days without, like, eating, using the restroom, like, doing anything that they have to do mm-hmm. to, like, take care of themselves to gain literal entry into the house and then into this group. Yeah, kind of a bizarre, and again, like you mentioned, Jack is, seems very unaware and all of a sudden this is happening. And something I didn't think about yeah. until just now is, like, why Jack doesn't have to go through this process. Like, him and Tyler <laughs> are just automatically, I guess because they're the co 
founders of Fight Club and I guess therefore Project Mayhem. But for seemingly knowing so little about Project Mayhem, the fact that he just gets to slide in without having to do this is interesting. Maybe a little bit of foreshadowing there, Dr. Fran, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think like you mentioned, in a lot of ways, Tyler and Jack are kind of attached at the hip. They do everything together. They kind of know what the other one knows. And then in other instances, Jack is kind of like oblivious to what's going on. And that really ramps up with Project Mayhem. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we mentioned, like when these people are joining the group, I think it's a little unsettling, too, that once they, I guess, are rewarded, I will say that loosely because I don't think it's a positive thing. But once they're rewarded with entry into the home, they basically are only allowed to bring in like certain things. And one of those is money for their own burial, which is just very unsettling. Got two black shirts. Sir. Two pair of black pants. Yes, sir. One pair of black boots. Sir. Two pair of black socks. Sir. One black jacket. Sir. $300 personal burial money. Yes, sir. All right. Yeah. And another thing that happens when they enter the home is they start to lose their names and their identity. Um, And there are a few kind of really interesting psychology um, concepts that um, can really be related to what's happening with Project Mayhem and kind of what's developing there. And one of them is de-individuation. And this is, again, that that idea of loss of self-awareness and self-identity that can form within groups. Um, so really adopting more of that group identity. So in this in this case, the identity of Project Mayhem um, and decreasing your own self-awareness and sometimes regulation. And so that combined with being anonymous, which again, we do see in Project Mayhem can lead to increased violence and aggressive behavior. That's a great point. And I think we see that through a lot of the kind of a lot of the tenants or a lot of the processes that are going on with Project Mayhem. You know, Tyler is calling these people like space monkeys. They no longer have a name. Mm -hmm. Um, They're really just kind of treated in a really negative way to meet his goals or I guess the greater goals of Mm -hmm. Project Mayhem and whatever they're hoping to achieve there. Um, This also leads to dehumanization. So this is another term that describes the process of depriving a person or a group of people of human qualities. So this is like done, like we mentioned, like when um, Tyler takes away people's names or kind of starts to call them space monkeys, kind of treating them like animals, it really lessens the um, the way that others might see them as a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an interesting scene when actually one of the members of Project Mayhem dies and they start talking about like how they don't have names and that they don't gain names unless in death through Project Mayhem, which is just kind of like sad, but shows the seriousness of how bought in all of these individuals are. In death, a member of Project Mayhem has a name. His name is Robert Paulson. 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 Come on, guys, His please name stop it. Is Robert Paulson. Yeah, and I think, you know, we don't see the group get um, outwardly violent in the movie, but we can see that they may be heading down that path. So they are bombing buildings. Um, you know, typically they're not purposely targeting or they actually are purposely targeting buildings that they know don't have people in them but you could see that the way this is headed that if Tyler made some plan that did involve being violent towards certain groups of people this process of dehumanizing even people outside of the group might contribute to um, you know the behavior escalating and be term- becoming more outwardly violent in the future. I think we even start to see that escalation so um, we'll get into this a little bit more kind of like the 
I guess, philosophy or the belief system behind Project Mayhem and really spearheaded by Tyler. Um, but we do see that in kind of wanting to bomb these buildings, to erase debt, to be anti-corporation, um, that in order to protect that vision, Tyler does start to make comments to Jack about having to get rid of Marla. He mm-hmm. sees her as like a threat to the overall goals. I think that he kind of thinks Marla holds um, holds Jack back, uh, which I think is kind of this interesting... I'll call it a love triangle for now. (laughs) But it's like this interesting love triangle uh, because Jack also tries to seem uninterested in Marla, but then there also is a lot of evidence that he's perhaps jealous of the relationship between Tyler and Marla. Um, And I think jealousy kind of pops up a lot, a couple of times with Jack because at other times he also seems jealous of Tyler's relationships with other members of the Fight Club. Yeah, I think one other interesting concept to think about with um, Fight Club and then Project Mayhem is also this idea of group think. So that's this idea that when a group gets together and is thinking or making decisions as a group, um, oftentimes that can discourage creativity and individual responsibility and actually can lead to poorer decision making or making more risky Mm -hmm. um, or unhelpful decisions as a larger group, which we kind of get to see that a little bit in Project Mayhem as well. It's almost like that concept, um, it works in a different way, but, you know, like the diffusion of responsibility. Like mm-hmm. the more people there are to be held accountable for something, the less likely the individual is to think like they're responsible for it. Um, mm-hmm. And so we see that in Project Mayhem kind of as a group, the way that decisions are being made, it's kind of discouraging their own individual like creativity or ideas and kind of giving a whole, and their own responsibility and kind of giving it all into the group. So a lot of these concepts and things we've been talking about kind of really start to hint at like, What really has the Fight Club or Project Mayhem become? And is it, in fact, a cult? I don't know, Dr. Sam, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Sam was tasked with researching this piece of it, so I'll let her get into that. I will preface this, you know, uh, neither Dr. Fran nor I are social psychologists, and this is not a construct that either of us like study and research. It is, however, a more like just like personal site interest of mine. In general, I'm really interested in true crime. So I will, we will discuss cults. Um, I think this is another um, topic that we could talk about for so long. Mm-hmm. There's so much research out there. There are a lot of different types and tenants involved. Um, so for the sake of this session, we will really keep it focused on some of the ways that Fight Club may look like a cult and uh, discuss those, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, cover cults in the future in more depth too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think to start off with that, it's like, okay, what is a cult? (laughs) I think briefly, we can kind of think about a cult as a bounded social group or a social movement that is held together by this shared commitment to a charismatic leader or ideology. Um, and it requires a really high level of commitment from its members uh, in terms of their what they say and what they do. So when we're thinking about it broadly, what do you think, Dr. Fran? Would you think that probably what's happening with Project Mayhem is trending into becoming a cult? Yeah, I mean, I think based on that definition, you've got like a commitment to Tyler. You've also got a commitment mm-hmm. to what Tyler represents um, and a pretty strong commitment. I mean, you've got this huge group of people that are willing to give up whatever they have left behind, whether it's family, jobs, friends, other relationships to move into this home and devote pretty much all of their time to Project Mayhem. Exactly. These people are giving up their like otherworldly possessions, all of their money except for the burial money. They're only showing up with a couple of outfits and just giving in to the whole um, idea of Tyler. And so what does 
Tyler stand for? Let's hear him talk about it a little bit in his own words. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra, Olestra, Martha Stewart. Fuck Martha Stewart. Arthur's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. What? The things you own end up owning you. So... You know, as we hear there, Tyler is very anti-corporate, very anti-materialism. And that's really the main ideology uh, behind Project Mayhem, what they're standing for and what they're trying to fight against. So when we're looking at cults, actually, one of the main things is the support of an all-encompassing belief system. So I would say that for Project Mayhem and the Flight Cup, there's a a definite check there for Mm -hmm. that one. Dr. Fran, you've actually alluded to one of the second things we would see with cults, which is exhibiting an excessive devotion to or like a a large dependency on this charismatic or perfect leader. Uh, So Tyler. And Jack even makes some comments about how Jack is this, or sorry, that Tyler is this very, um, you know, reveled leader. Sooner or later, we all became what Tyler wanted us to be. In Tyler, we trusted. And then the third one is really this um, idea of not being able to speak badly about the ideas, the group, or the leader. And so in the Fight Club, they're actually not even permitted to talk about the group or the practices or the plans in general. Um, So I think that that's another big checkmark there. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. And so the fourth thing that we might also see be characteristics of cults is having an attitude of disdain for non-members. So we might not see this explicitly, but I think there's definitely a hint that, you know, Tyler definitely has disdain for people that are outside of his ideology or kind of are living within the typical societal consumerism norms. So I think along those lines... In looking at kind of that definition of a cult, kind of going through those major things we might expect to see for a cult, I would say that Project Mayhem and the Fight Club has become a cult. What do you think, Dr. Fran? Yeah, I mean, based on that criteria, it does seem seem like it's definitely heading in that direction if it's not there already. Exactly. And this is a very nuanced thing, so I'm sure um, that it could be debated and even thought of in a different way. But I think for the way that we've defined it and kind of what we've researched based on, like, kind of, like we said, a more, like, high-level kind of way, I agree with Dr. Fran. Cult, or definitely soon-to-be cult. <laughs> And so as Project Mayhem grows, you know, things are definitely escalating. There actually is a rift between Tyler and Jack. They get into a big argument following a car accident where they were actually having the argument in. Um, And then uh, Tyler disappears. And we'll definitely get more into that. But then once Tyler is gone, a member, actually Bob, right? Bob, uh, he dies Mm -hmm. while on a mission for Project Mayhem. So Jack then really, like, 
goes on a mission to try to stop Project Mayhem. He doesn't really know a lot about what their plans are, but he kind of starts going through the information. He's trying to uh, track down Tyler and undo all that he has done. And along this journey, he learns some startling information. And so I think we have to kind of take a step back and ask, who really is responsible for Project Mayhem? Is it Jack? Is it Tyler? Is it both of them? Let's look at some of the evidence. And I think kind of like what's going on here. There's been some interesting (laughs) kind of things going on throughout the film. So Dr. Sam likes to bring out her virtual um, spy notebook and take some notes. (laughs) And so thinking through like what are some of the clues that we've seen throughout the film that might lead us to believe that something mysterious is going on here. So one of the first, pretty early I think, um, Jack makes a comment you know, I know this because Tyler knows this. So throughout like a few different times, like there's comments made like this, like somehow they both have shared information. Like, is it telepathy? Mm -hmm. Like what's going on (laughs) that they can be sharing information back and forth? I agree. And like we kind of alluded to earlier, there's like this sense that, you know, they are always together. They have a lot of shared knowledge. But then at some point, and actually as things are kind of ramping up, that's Mm -hmm. when we start to see this discrepancy where all of a sudden uh, Jack is more in the dark and doesn't know about as much of what's going on you know and then we also see an interesting scene when um jack's condo is burnt down and while he's on the phone with the police officer like tyler makes this comment about like you're the one who burnt down the condo and jack's like what are you talking about and there's all this kind of confusion and hints that like something odd happened with the condo yes i think that it's reoccurring and it's interesting because you're right at first tyler is accusing jack but then right before tyler disappears in that argument that he has with Jack, Tyler then confesses and says that he, in fact, is the one who burned down Jack's condo to Mm kind of help him along this awakening that he's trying to lead him through. So who blew up the condo? I don't know. We'll never know. (laughs) And others even sometimes seem to maybe even refer to Jack as Tyler or Mr. Durden. So that happens a few times, like um, a car driver, a bartender that's later in the movie and then the relationship with marla is very interesting dr sam what do you think is going on with that so speaking of spy notebooks my spy notebook is filled with clues from marla (laughs) (laughs) so i think it starts very early on with the relationship with marla and i was actually thinking and dr fran and i had a sidebar about this earlier when i mentioned about how if jack had chosen marla at various points the movie would have been completely different. One of those points is actually when the condo burns down because he does consider giving Marla a call. And imagine how much mm-hmm. more different of a movie that would have been if it wasn't Tyler. If he had never met Tyler. Yeah. But interestingly, you know, he's the one that knows Marla and through him, Tyler meets Marla. So Tyler goes and rescues her after her uh, attempt at suicide and they start a sexual relationship. But interestingly, when this relationship starts, Jack actually has a dream that shows him having sex with Marla. So it's kind of this weird, like, was it a dream? Is it a memory of him being the one who was sexual with Marla? Or is he just fantasizing because he actually has a crush on or has these deep you know, feelings about Marla that he doesn't want to admit. Exactly. And throughout the movie, they kind of show that when Tyler and Marla are having sex, Jack can hear it and is actually very irritated. But it's like, okay, well, is that Mm -hmm. kind of a jealousy thing? Like, what's really going on there? And Mm -hmm. that dynamic uh, kind of comes through a lot with Jack and Marla. So the first morning after she has been with Tyler, she comes down in the kitchen and Jack kind of rudely says to her, like, what are you doing here? And I think this is Mm -hmm. a big clue because Marla looks at him and she's kind of like, what are you like what are you talking about and she gets mad and she storms off right and there's a few other interactions like that where you know it's the morning after or 
Marla comes to presumably see Tyler and Jack responds to her in a very rude kind of dismissive way. And she gets really offended, um, which is kind of seems surprising because you're like, this guy's always a jerk to you, you know, but her reaction is always kind of a little off. It's true. And their relationship is just a little off, right? When she um, she's worried about having a lump on her breast and it's Jack who she calls. Mm-hmm. And Jack's even like, why didn't you call, like, why did you call me to do this? And she's just like, she's always very confused by him or very surprised at what he says. I think that there's a really mm-hmm. good conversation slash argument that him and Marla have that I think encompasses their tumultuous relationship well. So let's listen to that. You listen, um... What, what are you getting out of all this? What? I mean, all this, why do you keep... Is this making you happy? Yeah, well, sometimes. What? I don't know, I don't understand. I mean, why, why does a weaker person need to latch on to a strong person? What, what, what is that? What do you get out of it? No, it's, it's not the same thing at all. I mean, it's totally different with us. We're, we're... Us? What do you mean by us? I'm sorry, are you, do you hear this? Hear what? You're not hearing all that noise? Just hold, hold on a second. No, wait, what were you saying? Don't change the subject, I want to talk about this. You're not talking about me, are you? No. What? That day you came over to my place to play doctor. What was going on there? What are you talking about? Nothing, nothing. I don't think so. Oh, come on, what do you want? Look at me. No, what? Look at me. What is that? It's nothing, don't worry about it. Oh my God. Who did this? A person. Guy or girl? What do you care if it's a guy or a girl? What do you care if I ask? It's none of your business. You're Leave me alone. I am not afraid no. to say, let me go. No, talk to me. Let go of me. No. Leave me alone. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over. Yeah, I think there is, you know, spidey senses are tingling <laughs> with this clip. Um, you, It's almost like, I think it's, you know, you can think about a narrative or even like a visual um, like technique that's being used here. It's almost as like Tyler is speaking through Jack, right? So Tyler's mouthing the words, um, which you can't see over the clip, obviously. But if you're watching it, you can see Tyler is speaking and like whispering, mouthing these things. And then Jack, it's coming out of his mouth. And that's who, what Tyler, I mean, what Marla is hearing. So it's just kind of this interesting um, clip. And Marla there is also kind of expressing to Jack like how he treats her so negatively most of the time. And she makes a comment like except for the one time like when he was playing doctor. And again, this is something that Jack is really confused by. But it kind of alludes to maybe the fact that Jack was the one who saved her when she needed help after um, trying to take her own life. And this is highlighted again um, a little bit later in the movie when Marla shows up and Jack says to her, Tyler isn't here. Tyler went away. Tyler's gone. Tyler's not here and kind of kicks her out. And she's just like, what? Um, but then <laughs> but and then I think things really are um, illuminated. Yeah. Marla, it's me. Have we ever done it? Done what? Have we ever had sex? What kind of stupid question is that? Is it stupid because the answer is yes or because the answer is no? This is a trick. No, Marla, I need to know. You, you want to know if I think we're just having sex or making love? We did make love. Is that what you're calling it? Just answer the question, Marla, please. Did we do it or not? You fuck me, then snub me. You love me, you hate me. You show me a sensitive side, then you turn into a total asshole. Is that a pretty accurate description of our relationship, Tyler? We have just lost cabin pressure. What did you just say? What is wrong with you? What did you just call me? Say my name. Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden, you fucking freak. What's going on? I'm coming over. No, wait, Marla, I'm not there. (sighs) You broke your promise. 
You fucking talk to her about me. Tyler, what the fuck is going on here? I ask you for one thing. One simple thing. Why do people think that I'm you? Answer me! Shit. Answer me, why do people think that I'm you? I think you know. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Why would anyone possibly confuse you with me? Do not fuck with us! Say it. Because... Say it. Because we're the same person. Dun dun dun! They're the same person! <laughs> Twist! Also, spoiler alert, but this movie is quite old, so... <laughs> if you don't know, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, so this is, you know, like one of, I think, probably the most classic or iconic twists or you know i think that's part of why this movie has a big cult following um (laughs) and things like that and you know i think dr sam can speak more to how this is a common narrative strategy that chuck palonic will use he's known for twists and things like that (laughs) definitely it's a big twist and so we do learn that jack and tyler are the same person Whoa, mind blown. Actually, I shouldn't say that concerning how the movie ends. But, um, you know, it's just it's a it's a big reveal. And when this movie came out, I think it did take a lot of people by surprise. I think now a lot of us know and this movie is known for having such a great twist. Um, Chuck Palahniuk in most of the novels I've read of his, I think he's kind of like the master at that. He does it really well, kind of sets you up to be surprised. Um, And I think we'll Mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about that because there are a lot of creative decisions made um, to kind of take the viewer on this journey so that we can be surprised. Um, But what is going on then? Like, what is Mm -hmm. going on with Jack and Tyler? So it seems like Chuck Palahniuk and, you know, the writers and creators of Fight Club, the movie, are portraying that Jack is suffering from what we call dissociative identity disorder, which was previously known as multiple personality disorder. And I'll kind of get into a little bit later um, why that switch happened and why we call it dissociative identity disorder or DID now. So a lot of people have heard about this disorder, Mm -hmm. either because they've watched Fight Club before or (laughs) they've seen other movies or TV shows portrayed by it. Likely not because they know someone who has this, but it's very rare um, and also very controversial. So I'll get into some of that. But first, let's just talk through, like, what are some of the classic symptoms of DID? And I also want to highlight, Dr. Fran, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, this is a rare disorder. But you have experience working with individuals diagnosed with DID. I do. Um, And again, kind of controversial because, you know, you might get one patient that comes into the office and one provider who's worked a lot with DID might say or think that they have DID. And another Mm -hmm. clinician might say it's more PTSD with some dissociative features. So it can get kind of complicated. And even I would say like the same patient might be conceptualized a little bit differently um, depending on what's going on. That makes sense. So what would be the criteria or the things that we would be looking for if um, uh, evaluating whether or not someone meets um, for a diagnosis of DID? 
Yeah, so specifically we're looking for two or more what they call distinct identities or personality states. So each of these two or more identities or personality states need to have their own pattern of perceiving, relating to, and thinking about the environment and themselves. And it's really important to note the cultural context because in some cultures this could be uh, described as an experience of possession or other different things like that. And it's also important to note like with every other pretty much every other disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there needs to be distress and impairment. So if someone's having an out-of-body or possessive type experience, but it's not causing distress and it's more cultural, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're more talking about what we see with potentially Jack and Tyler. Like I would actually categorize that you've got two pretty distinct personalities. I mean, we came up with basically different diagnoses for each of them as we were talking through it. That's true. And as we even describe them, you know, we kind of said uh, that Tyler in a lot of ways is almost the opposite of Jack. Um, or mm-hmm. as we hear Tyler describe it, basically he is who Jack wanted to be, right? And so some other features we look for with DID is also having kind of a change in sense of self or agency, major changes in behavior, memory, perception, different things like that. So we definitely see pieces of that with Jack throughout the movie as well. I think one of those examples might be when we talked about this scene a little bit earlier, but when Jack is seen to physically fight himself. Um, so that could be mm-hmm. a change kind of in his motor functioning, right? Uh, when he's literally battling himself brutally mm-hmm. in front of his boss. Well, and we later find out that the whole, obviously, Tyler's another part of Jack. And so the whole scene where they're, he's fighting himself when he's actually fighting Tyler. It's kind of that like switching of motor functions, like you mentioned. And I love that you say that because in the scene later on that I just described where he's fighting himself in front of his boss, he actually kind of has an internal thought like, for some reason, I thought about my first fight with Tyler. And that's because this might be the second time he's actually fighting himself in this manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then another really big characteristic we see with DID is really big gaps um, in the individual's memory or personal history. And the idea is that what is happening is that the person might be switching between those two states. Um, So for example, going between Jack and Tyler, and that can account for why Jack is missing so much time. So sometimes he thinks he's sleeping, but really he's actually going out and performing typical activities or going and flying around the country and setting up Project Mayhem, but as Tyler, and he doesn't have a recollection of that. So this is an interesting point because with Jack's insomnia, we thought that a lot of his difficulty with sleep or his daytime functioning related to not being able to sleep was contributing kind of to this confusion, the gaps in memory. Um, And so now there could be another contributing factor, right, that's related. So probably a little bit Mm -hmm. difficult to tease those apart. But we do see that this um, becomes more and more of an issue like we talked about in Project Mayhem. There seems to be more and more lapses in what Jack Mm -hmm. is remembering or what knowledge he has versus Tyler. Yeah, and so you kind of alluded to earlier my experience working with some individuals that may have DID. And part of that is because I do specialize in working with individuals with trauma. And so that is typically how we think of um, DID as developing. Kind of the classic pattern um, of DID is thought to be um, someone who has had a really extensive history of child abuse, typically sexual abuse, um, and that then they end up creating these alters or these um, other states in a way of an ability to protect themselves, um, mentally being able to dissociate or separate from the event that's occurring, especially if it's a recurring really traumatic, really awful event, finding some way of coping with that by dissociating and developing these alters. 
And so Dr. Fran and I have chatted about this, and I know we mentioned it. In thinking about Jack, we don't know too much about his history. Um, We don't know about any explicit uh, experiences with trauma. We do know that he might have some vicarious trauma. He does go and see some some pretty scary or severe car accidents that have, you know, resulted in deaths. He makes comments about that. Uh, He did have the fire at his condo, but again, we don't really know if that would constitute a trauma since he may be the person who also... (laughs) set his condo on fire Mm -hmm. we learn um so we don't know too much about jack's trauma history yeah and it's not to say again did doesn't have in the criteria that you have Mm -hmm. to have experienced trauma and that that's the cause but our understanding and most people the way they conceptualize and um, understand how or why did develops um is through some kind of really extensive trauma history so um, without really knowing exactly what happened to jack it's kind of unclear like how that developed or you know Mm -hmm. has this been going on even before tyler that we see or is this the first time this is happening so just a lot of unknowns there That's true. We don't really get, you know, even despite the trauma history, we just don't know really much about Jack's history at all. One of the things that we see in the movie Dr. Fran with Tyler, at one point, like we talked about, Tyler and Jack do get into this argument, a disagreement, and then Tyler is gone. He disappears. And actually, Jack describes it as, you know, getting dumped, basically. And then... Tyler? Tyler was gone. Okay, I'm all alone. My father dumped me. Tyler dumped me. I am Jack's broken heart. Is that something that could be seen or is typical in individuals with DID? So, you know, I think it can be typical, and I want to say, especially under periods of more extreme stress, that the switching or the change, what uh, Jack calls the changeovers, could occur more frequently in times of stress. Again, if we're thinking of some of the alters as being there for the purpose of protecting the individual, that they might come out more um, in order to fulfill that role. So I do think there is something to be said that it could, there could be longer periods of time that Tyler is quote unquote taking over. That makes sense because it seems like the assumption is that the alter, so Tyler, is much more involved and responsible for the ongoings of Project Mayhem. And we see that Jack has less and less Mm -hmm. awareness or knowledge of that because maybe Tyler is more present for those. And then we have the car accident where they're having that agreement. It's like a big event and does lead to stress and kind of like, you know, it's a stressful situation. And then that's when Tyler Mm -hmm. um, disappears. However, we do know... Right that Tyler then returns um, and as we listened to the clip of earlier kind of reveals to Jack what has been going on. Naturally you're still wrestling with it so sometimes you're still you. We should do this again sometime. Other times you imagine yourself watching me. If this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. Little by little you're just letting yourself become Tyler Durden. Yeah, and so, you know, we could get into the portrayal of this, and I know Dr. Sam and I have kind of gone back (laughs) and forth about how DID is portrayed, and that's clearly what they were trying Mm -hmm. to portray in this film and in the book. Um, Obviously, the way that they portrayed it may not be the most accurate, especially because, you know, my understanding, some people I've worked with that um, meet criteria for DID have had experiences where they're able to have the alters communicate back and forth, but it's typically not like physically visualizing them outside of their mind. Um, That's what we think more of as like a hallucination. So when Tyler and Jack are 
conversing and he visions he sees Tyler like in the kitchen with him that's not typically how one would um, have a conversation with an alter it would usually be more internal I agree and I think actually like in my research on the movie that seems to be a big um, source of debate right like so I think overall they were trying to portray DID uh, but for the dramatic effect and for the sake of the twist right like we would have known if it was just Jack kind of Mm -hmm. uh, switching between personalities but for the big twist and the reveal at the end they do have Tyler portrayed as another individual um, which does make it seem more like Jack is hallucinating and seeing this other individual and even hearing the voices your voice in my head your voice in mine you're a fucking hallucination why can't i get rid of you but i i do think that overall they're trying to portray did um but probably just for the sake of entertainment and this is what we often see with mental health and (laughs) disorders of this kind when they are um, portrayed in movies and tv shows they are exaggerated or adapted or changed to make things more entertaining Yeah, and I think DID is especially important to talk about in this way because not only is it often misrepresented in movie and TV shows, but it's actually a very controversial diagnosis in general. Um, And you kind of maybe have sensed some of my hesitancy as I talk about it today. And part of that is because there just isn't a lot of consensus about DID, about um, some psychologists don't even really believe that it's necessarily a diagnosis or that think maybe more that it's on the spectrum of a post-traumatic stress disorder or things like that versus some people think it's way more common than we actually say it is so you really see people across the spectrum on how they view DID and that comes up for a few different reasons Um, so a lot of people aren't really trained in um, you know diagnosing or treating DID. We don't have a lot of like evidence-based treatments that we know of that are really effective for this disorder. Um, A lot of times people are concerned about what we call malingering or someone feigning or faking a disorder in order to um, get some kind of secondary gain, like whether it's legally or um, financial gains or something like that. And there's been a lot of really interesting research on um, kind of people's susceptibility to creating um, false memories or even potentially developing or seeming to develop alters through the process of therapy. And that's, again, a very controversial topic. Um, A lot of people argue that, you know, through the process of therapy and talking about potential alters and trauma and things like that, that the therapy process itself can have someone um, start to show more symptoms of this, not causing DID, but kind of having people get a little bit confused about what's actually going on um, and the experiences that they're having. I think those factors can definitely make it, um, like you mentioned, a difficult diagnosis to be able to evaluate and treat and then, you know, even probably do research on. And you also mentioned that it's quite Mm -hmm. rare. Um, So what is the prevalence or, you know, kind of how often are we seeing individuals um, uh, being diagnosed with DID? So the rates are around less 2% or less of the population um, have chronic episodes of DID or um, or of chronic um, depersonalization or derealization. So I want to kind of define those terms because I think we oftentimes think of DID and then hear the word dissociation and aren't really sure how to differentiate them. So DID is that formal diagnosis we just talked through. Dissociation is a component of that, but it's 
defined as a disconnection between a person's thoughts, memories, feelings, or actions. Um, So some people think of this as anyone can experience. You're like driving down the street and your mind is lost and it's some partially disconnected from what you're doing in that moment. Some people would characterize that as dissociation. Obviously, that's not the same thing as developing a Tyler Alter and doing all these things that you're not aware of and kind of this whole process. So there's kind of that spectrum Mm -hmm. there. And then there's depersonalization, which is feeling detached from your body, and then derealization, which is detaching from surroundings. So potentially up to like a third of people have had kind of that situation where you feel like you're watching yourself in a movie, for example. Um, So that can be much more common, but having something like DID is pretty rare, definitely um, a small percentage of the population that we're aware of that would meet criteria. And Dr. Fran, can you share any kind of briefly... um, components of the treatment for DID? So the treatment for DID um, can vary definitely based on the provider. Um, So I've seen some providers really work on trying to integrate um, the parts over time. So really working on identifying like what are the purposes of each alter? So for example, figuring out like for Tyler, like what is the purpose? He has something valuable that he's trying to do to protect Tyler or to protect Jack. Mm -hmm. And so really figuring out like what are his strengths and how can we incorporate him and you know, still keep him involved with the ultimate goal of eventually having the alters either be integrated or be able to function um, cohesively, even if they are still not fully integrated. Um, But I've also seen, you know, when I was doing a little bit of research that some approaches might be more of your typical like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, managing coping and emotion regulation and routine and just different pieces like that. But there's not really, from my my reading and research, not really one gold standard treatment for DID because again, we just don't have enough research on it right now. But definitely seems like something that Jack would benefit from some support and therapy around along with maybe some of his other mood-related concerns and Mm sleep-related concerns. (laughs) But I think it's great that we are able to kind of share more of the information around like what DID looks like, what to expect, how, you know, how common we may expect to even see it in the population. Because like you mentioned, it is so commonly portrayed in movies and TV shows. And I think it's often just portrayed very inaccurately because it's something that a lot of people have heard Mm -hmm. about, right? Like multiple personality disorder. And it's interesting and it probably makes for entertaining plots. But I think sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, even as we chatted a little bit about like with the hallucinations, I think sometimes we'll even see in movies, like they'll say someone has schizophrenia and then they'll kind of portray it as someone who is maybe switching between an alter and a core personality or things of that nature. So definitely something that is often misconstrued and I think portrayed in a way that is not very accurate. And again, we recognize that it's for entertainment purposes and the idea of someone going between two personalities like Jack and Tyler for entertainment purposes is interesting and appealing and people want to watch it and learn more about it. So it can, we can understand why that's a common topic and it's still frustrating um, when there is a lot of misinformation and kind of misunderstanding going on around mental health. Exactly. And related to that kind of inaccurate information, and you mentioned this earlier, Dr. Fran, it is, as we mentioned, it is called dissociative identity disorder. It is no longer um, called multiple personality disorder. So maybe we can chat a little bit more about that. Yeah. So unfortunately, no therapy portrayal (laughs) in today's episode. Um, This is actually our first session that we don't have a therapy portrayal to do our PH don't segment on. But instead, we did want to introduce a new segment um, that we're going to be 
calling the diagnosis graveyard. Uh, so this is where outdated diagnoses are laid to rest. Diagnosis graveyard. So today we're going to be adding multiple personality disorder to the graveyard. So obviously part of our goal with this podcast is to help educate and kind of share information with people. So now you know multiple personality disorder is not a thing anymore. It is now dissociative identity disorder. Um, multiple personality disorder only lived a short um 14 years, actually. <laughs> it was first coined in the third version of the Diagnostical Statistical Manual in 1980. Um, and then in the most recent version, um, or no, actually, sorry, the DSM-4 um, in 1994 is when they changed it to DID, or Dissociative Identity Disorder. Um, and the reason they changed it was they they described that the main problem is not that there's multitude a multitude of personalities, but there's a lack of a single unified identity. So it's less there's multiple personalities and more that it's this idea of dissociating or kind of a differentiation between that one core identity so goodbye multiple personality disorder you were a disorder and now you are no longer its name was multiple personality disorder his name is robert paulson so stay tuned for future Diagnosis Graveyard segments to learn about other diagnoses that are no longer used in the medical and mental health field. So it's almost time to wrap up the Fight Club episode. So Dr. Sam, what are your overall impressions of the movie? I like this movie. You know, it is a cult classic for a reason. Um, I think it, I always find it interesting that when it actually was released in the you know, in the box office and the theaters, it did not do well. So it gained popularity later. Um, but I just think, you know, I love Edward Norton. I love Brad Pitt. The acting is great. It is entertaining. It has a big twist. I also just love, like, you know, Polonic. I think he paints a good world. And, you know, it's also a satirical piece in a lot of a ways. So I think you can watch it and enjoy it on so many levels. So as a movie, uh, definitely one that I enjoy. What about you, Dr. Fran? Yeah, I would agree. I really love this movie. I know I mentioned this has been one of my favorite movies for a long time and I hadn't watched it in a while so going back and re-watching it I was like this is a weird movie but I still really <laughs> like it um, and it actually has one of my favorite scenes I think from any movie of all time the last scene where Jack and Marla are holding hands and watching the towers fall and the pixies where is my mind is playing I think is like one of the best uses of cinematography combined with audio and it's just for some reason it just always stands out to me and I love that scene yeah and Jack ends up with Marla who would have known <laughs> yeah who would have thunk it who would have thunk it um, and so related we are introducing another new segment today um, so a new rating system as you may remember Dr. Fran and I usually will kind of rate how the therapy was portrayed or the mental health um, themes that we discuss are portrayed and sometimes we'll say like thumbs up or down or stars and it kind of just varies so we decided to come up with our own rating system and you've heard Dr. Fran today uh, use the term the DSM-5 so the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, obviously. Um, <laughs> so this is the book that is used to diagnose psychological disorders. Um, and so we have created our own DSM-5, or Diagnosing Shows and Movies, on our five-scale rating system. 
So on our scale, a five would be the most accurate with, you know, potentially minor deviations. um, And a one would really be outrageous, not even close to an accurate portrayal. So we're going to start this off, our, you know, introduction to our DSM-5 rating. So Dr. Fran, what would you give Fight Club on the DSM-5? So I think I would have to give Fight Club like a two out of five. Um, You know, not very accurate with the DID portrayal. Um, You know, the insomnia, I'll give it like a point four. Um, That's about it, though. (laughs) All right. All right. Harsh critic here. But, you know, that's our that's our purpose. We want to kind of show like if things are done in a way that we would be expected or not. And, you know, I'm actually going to agree. I think for Fight Club, I'm going to give it a two as well. I think that there are certain things that they portray in a mildly accurate way, you know, kind of like the lapses in time, the development of two distinct personalities. But because they do add that element of having Tyler almost appear as a hallucination, I think that that kind of detracts from the actual, um, you know, criteria for a DID diagnosis. So I would give it a two as well. And also have to give a shout out to Dr. Sam for coming up with the clever DSM acronym. If you didn't catch that, (laughs) it is DSM Diagnosing Shows and Movies. So very clever on her part if you didn't catch that. Yes, and we'll be using that moving forward for the rating of the portrayal. But we'll still always kind of just discuss if we like the show or movie. Um, And I think you might have noticed a pattern. We typically do choose things that we enjoy or are new. So there can still be surprises. But we also will cover things that we do not like as much or maybe have even more outrageous of inaccurate portrayals. So there will be a variety. (laughs) Nope. I think we should only do shows and movies that we like. (laughs) That's not biased at all. Not biased. (laughs) We're all about accurate portrayals and (laughs) non-biased approaches. But there's bias in everything, I do have to say. So before we keep going down that road, session's over for Fight Club. (laughs) Let us know your thoughts on the movie. We'd also love to hear what questions you have about psychology and what movies or shows you want us to put on the couch and break down next. Don't forget to please check out our website, freudianscripts.com, for additional resources and information. Lots of cool information on there about topics we covered in today's session and in previous sessions. Find and follow us on social media. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon. Creative director, Eric and Webmaster Don. We did it. We did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs>